Hello and welcome to another episode of You Never Forget Your First. I am Dom and I am joined by Louis. Hello. Benas. Yeah, yeah. And Sparrow. Morning all. We were joined by Louis Silence as he was <laughs> having issues with his mic. A few technical <laughs> but issues, but we're, we're past it. We have a fifth member of the pod in a cat now or in a cat inside a cat or is she is the cat yes i can confirm she is a cat yeah okay. the cat is on the pod i think <laughs> <laughs> yes if you hear any uh if you hear any like loud bells or or screams that sound a bit like someone's been scratched that's um that's totally that's normal. not you <laughs> <laughs> that's the cat that's going to be raised in the average IQ level. Yeah. The, uh, the point I'm loving seeing everyone's faces in full quality. I feel like now Louis back in London. Everyone's internet has leveled out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think since I've left, the the, the broadband usage in in Fort Augustus has probably decreased by like ninety percent. The broadband guy in the, in the one hut is just like, oh, thank God that guy's left. Yeah, you can finally go on holiday. He's gone through our yearly internet usage in, <laughs> in two months. Yeah, exactly. Um, we were blacklisted, so uh, I had to leave. And yeah, now I'm back down in London. How are you finding it back here? Um, great. I was missing home, you know. Um, I think we were up there for what, like three months. That's a long, a long stretch. It was pretty amazing, you know, in some ways, just to kind of be able to to move around and sort of locked down not being too locked down as it were but um you know i was getting homesick glad glad to be home and london's um you know london's lovely now things seem to be easing up a little bit i feel like we're edging closer to a real life pod yeah, at some yeah. Point. as ever you have to like disclaimer this with with this might be going out when there's another huge pandemic going on <laughs> yeah but yeah um, that's true but yeah yeah we are we are recording this on Saturday, the 20th of June. And it's, um, yeah, it's a lovely summer's day. People are, you know, venturing out and being quite careful. And uh, yeah, I'm quite enjoying being in London. Nice. How are you guys doing? No, I'm all good. But yeah, it looks like things are starting to open up. Time will tell. Mm-hmm. Benas, how are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Pretty the lockdown episode. Yeah. Yeah, um, pretty easy. This is like normal life for Ben As, isn't it? No change. Just, like... just watch movies and just venture out. Just yeah, like... except your movie watching list is kind of ever increasing more and more each time <laughs> we do a podcast. Yeah, I, this is the longest watch list I've ever received for an episode. It looks like you've watched all of Netflix's back catalogue. Ben As is just like, what lockdown? I've just been watching films all day. <laughs> Taking a good swing at every single other streaming provider. <laughs> yeah. Fun. A lot of TV, Atlanta, White Lines, Space Force. I've been watching the Eddie, which you've been watching as well. That's Damien Chazelle's yeah new series, which is um. I was I was going to ask, what do you think of it? Yeah, I I like it. I like I I really liked the first two episodes a lot, and I think that's because Chazelle directed them. Yeah, you can definitely feel the change in directors. Yeah, and in the the slight sixteen mil to yeah, yeah. <laughs> to making it look like sixteen mil through digital. Um, but no, it's good. It's, I think it was a really good decision of him to do something that is the opposite of La La Land, but still within the music world. Yeah. And, you know, everyone loves a bit of jazz. Why not? Yeah, I really enjoyed the kind of French aspect of it. A lot, ta- a lot of it takes on the street, so the French yeah. piece, So I thought that was a cool aesthetic in terms of it. Yeah, the handheld thing's great. Yeah. I don't quite know where it's going, but it's it's not. I feel like whenever they're not sure what's going on, they just like jazz it up <laughs> yeah. and then you're like, yeah, I'm into this. <laughs> jazz is really his thing. Like, that's where he's most at home, I think, with the exception yeah. of the first man. There, yeah, there is there is genuine shades of Guy Madeline in, in 
the AD, which is I feel like he, really cool to see. He carries it through for, through all of his films, like that first film. You can see a lot of his kind of like motifs or whatever, or, and his style just kind of like, you can see a bit of it in each film he does. Maybe First Man was the biggest departure, not just because it's not set around jazz or anything, but that was just because it was the most Hollywood film he's actually made. It's not set in this world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like if we go into this much detail on every single thing you've watched, we, we would be here for like we would be here for like four hours. Is there anything particular out of your list that? Uh... Yeah, I'd, I'd recommend. So I watched two Norwegian films last night. Uh, one was called The Wave in English. Uh, I, I forgot what it's called in Norwegian. No worries. But that was Bolgen. Yeah, yeah. Is that what it's called? Yeah, yeah. Um, that was very uh, kind of like kind of like Roland Emmerich in terms, but like on a on a small scale. It's set like in the small Norwegian town where like um, Mount in a fjord. So, so mountains move and then basically this massive wave and people struggle to survive. Uh, so that was really cool. Kind of like run of the mill, but because it's like Scandi, it's, um, it does have kind of different aesthetic, to it. <laughs> different aesthetic to it. <laughs> also I watched troll hunters, which was really cool. Uh, yeah. Um, for those who don't know, it's a found footage film about like obviously troll hunters, in terms like now, uh, found footage films have kind of gone, been and gone. Uh, but mm. it was, uh, yeah, it was nice to watch a found footage film that kind of d- deals with more fantastical creatures, which obviously are the trolls. Because in no way, they're not real. No, they are, bro. Yeah. It, it was a documentary. Um, so. <laughs> Don't joke about this. <laughs> it, was like mon- it was like monsters. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was all real. <laughs> um, but yeah. Um, the guy who made the wave, he later went on to do Tomb Raider, the the latest reboot. Um, nice. So he broke into Hollywood with that. I need to ask you before we move on to someone else that when you write TV shows you've watched, are you saying you've watched all of that TV show? <laughs> Have you just watched one episode? Because I'm just... I'm worried about how much you've been watching. Do you sleep? It's different. <laughs> just about. Um, <laughs> it's different with each thing. So Space Force, I did watch the entire thing, which was I... kind of. It was a bit torturous to get through. Yeah, uh, what did you think? I've seen like three, four episodes. That's Greg Daniels, right? Yeah. yeah Greg Daniels, yeah, the guy yeah. who made The Office. Yeah. So the first episode, I kind of gave it the benefit of doubt because it was like, okay, they're trying to get things through. And then yeah. the second second episode, where it basically it, will, it involves a CGI monkey kind of attach, attaching yeah yeah in space basically um and they struggled like with the jokes and some of the jokes are a bit i don't know whether they're they're kind of hold it feels like they're holding back because obviously it's uh taking the piss out of trump's trump's whole presidency right um but it feels like they're holding back on some of the jokes because they don't want to push it too far so then those Mm -hmm. jokes seem to land pretty flat i mean steve carell is great in it um most of the cast is is fine nothing to do with the acting it's just the whole idea in itself like oh sounds great yeah. on paper but they they it feels like they're too afraid to execute it properly and to take to take the jokes all the way so for me and, space, yeah space i found that the humor as well is just a bit too kind of like silly like you're, you're just meant to laugh at the kind of how far-fetched everything is rather than any yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. intelligent humor like character development or anything exactly um, like yeah. what was so great about the office was yeah there was some like just sort of silly things happening but the underlying comedy was like michael scott and dwight and like these mm. characters that are just really kind of like, everybody knows someone a bit like that and it felt kind of you know there's a real reality to it whereas this is just like slapstick yeah um, no. 
I saw Taika Waititi tweeted a while back about the US when they act, the actual US real space force they released a picture of their uniform and it's like camo yeah it's like a camo top and he's like yeah, yeah gonna be so much jungle up there in, <laughs> in space <laughs> Bernas was telling me that he's watched uh, Pollock which is a biopic biopic yeah. on Jackson Pollock yeah, yeah. which is right. Ed Harris's directorial debut Ed Harris yeah, yeah. yeah. the best character in Westworld yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, no, that's the best a, character in Enemy at the Gates. Yeah, no, I'll, I will have to check. Best character in the Truman Show. I'll have to, um, <laughs> we'll have to check that out. Is it good? Yeah, we, we'll have to do that at some point. It's a good film. Yeah, it's definitely worth doing. I have been watching The Eddie, and I also watched a very odd Japanese film called Tetsuo the Iron Man, which is a hentai uh, porn. Yeah, it's a it's a cult classic film, which is very sort of. 1990 like four or something um all special effects like like it's one of these like this this japanese director like the, the special effects he edited it he was one of the characters in it he shot it and it's just about a guy who shoves metal into himself and then he gets killed nice. by these two people who are driving a car and then the guy who's killed him and driving the car gets haunted by him and he turns into this like Iron Man metal fetishist, fetishist thing. It was so strange. I think. Um, I think. And I you, don't really recommend it. If, but if you, if you see if you see a film which is like which is quite bad, um, you can you can caveat it by saying it's a cult classic at the beginning, and yeah. you, whatever you say <laughs> doesn't matter. So you've already you've already yeah. covered you it off. anything. You found me out. You found me out. I'm glad I saw it because it's quite experimental and, and inventive, um, and there's some really cool filmmaking things in there. But yeah, it's 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 like on another on another world. Um, I also watched uh, what's going to be Sparrow's new favorite film, Bavesh Joshi superhero, low budget Indian superhero film, which was it's, it was so good. Like I was chatting to Benas about it, and I realized when I was talking about it that I was like, I actually really like this. I was like, yeah, yeah, check it out. It's kind of it's kind of okay. And then it was like. No, 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 seriously, check it out. It's actually really good. <laughs> um, yeah, it's about a guy who, uh, this, this, these two friends who kind of go against this water company, which is over overcharging people in India for their water. And they sort of mask up and become like vigilantes. That is and, the most uh, wholesome superhero ever. <laughs> Yeah, it was. It was. I was like, yeah, this is a genuine political problem by the looks of it. Um, if it's re- based on any reality, but uh, it was just really well shot, it's really well directed. The local council, they don't need a bloody superhero. Yeah, <laughs> it's quite funny. They start like a YouTube channel in the film where they film. They just film going up to people and being like, "You can't throw rubbish here," and people are like, "Get away from me!" And he's like, "You can't throw rubbish," and they just like harass them. The whole film paid for by like the sanitation department. <laughs> no, they they do literally go against the sanitation department. It's quite funny. Um, that sounds good, actually. And it, yeah, it was good. It's on Netflix, so uh, yeah, it's good. I'm getting Sparrow to watch it soon. I'll hopefully. check it. So I um, um, you've been on a Malik. Yeah, I was gonna say. So I've been watching lots of Malik, but yesterday actually I went to see Tenet at the cinema. It's Christopher Nolan's latest <laughs> nice. film. So that was pretty I good. Like that, yeah. Robert Patterson's pretty good, actually. Um, so no, all, all in all, it was good. Um, yeah. Nah. So what was the uh, what was the ending like? Hasn't happened yet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Was it a cult classic? <laughs> yeah. No, no. Joking aside. Um, no, I haven't seen that, obviously. But um, I have been like you mentioned, I'm going on a, a Terence Malick binge, um, which is okay. I just I just have to preface this before you go into Malick. That for anyone who knows Sparrow's watching taste, you watching like seven Malik films in the last like <laughs> week or something 
is just so absurd. It's like someone, it's like a friend of yours who hates comedies suddenly watching all of Will Ferrell's back catalogue. <laughs> it's like unheard of. Yeah, it is. It is slightly strange. I think like the moon must be close to the earth or something. <laughs> but the um, yeah, no, but no, I admit it is kind of un, out of character because they are slow films. Or you know, but um, but no, I've been really enjoying them. So I watched um, the Tree of Life. Uh, which is probably one of his biggest um, hmm. later films. And then I've watched his earlier stuff, which are Badlands and Days of Heaven. But yeah, um, I think we were speaking about it briefly yesterday. You've, got, you've kind of, generally with all of his films, you've kind of got to be in the mood to watch it. Um, you've got to be, because they are a bit slow and stuff. But if you can get in the, in short, I just really like the aesthetic, like very scenic shots um, with the interesting voiceovers, but yeah, I kind of just enjoy to use the phrase "going for the ride." But yeah, yeah, because he's it's, it's kind of contemplative cinema. It's like yeah. poetic cinema, I guess, is is another way of putting it in the same sort of region as Tarkovsky, although fundamentally different. One one should add. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Nolan. Speaking of Nolan, he he's Malik. He's quite a big fan of Malik, isn't he? And he's kind of borrowed. Yeah. Not, so he, I suppose he's he's kind of been inspired by elements of his filmmaking. So he's a big fan, Nolan. This is actually what triggered me into it. Nolan is a big fan of The Thin Red Line, which I actually haven't seen, um, but I will watch. Um, but yeah, he's just... Um, all I'd say with Malik is he has a very distinct style. Um, so it's almost certainly not for everyone, but I, yeah, I quite enjoy it. So. Mm. Well, you've seen a few of them, Benis, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. Song uh, of Song. Watched Knights of Cups, Song of Song. Uh, Badlands was a great film. Thin Red Line, obviously, you should check out. Tree of Life was the... I really liked, but I remember watching it and I was like... Okay, okay, so it's ended now. It was just like it's it's no yeah. it's no Bavesh Joshi superhero, is it? <laughs> Obviously not. <laughs> but yeah, um, it's definitely one to check out if you haven't. He's definitely the sort of person to see at the cinema. I know we always say good, but his um his mm. films would be a good spectacle on the big screen. Yeah, his cinematography is 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 so beautiful. We'll do Badlands at some point because that's his first. Louis, you've been rewatching The West Wing, <laughs> The Crown, <laughs> Fisherman's Friends. <laughs> Because <laughs> I'm so hungover. Oh my god, I'm so hungover. <laughs> um, no, actually, I haven't. I uh, I decided to try and try something new, which was um, a bit of a bold move for me. I I want to give a shout out to um, Little Fires Everywhere, which is a eight, eight episode, seven eight seven episode um, Amazon Prime thing. Originally Hulu, I found out when I was uh, when I was researching it. It's it's one of those very good. Um, it's based on a book of the same name. I think it's it's a very good like self contained watch a mini series. I guess you call it. And um, yeah, it's brilliant. It's it's without giving anything away. It's a kind of uh, a reflection on kind of suburban America, shown through the lens of these two characters who are both mothers uh, living in this small town. Um, it's yeah, really interesting. It's got a lot of themes in there that um, that feel quite relevant right now. The, the thing it reminds you a lot of is American Beauty. It's set in 1997. Ah. Um, you kind of like see the evolution of these people from the 60s up to to the 90s, but. Actually, I don't know if it's six years goes that far back, but um, but yeah, it's a really good like. It's a very similar thing of like you know you sort of uncover the picture perfect um exterior and you see that kind of like not far under the surface is this kind of like uh well they, these little fires everywhere. <laughs> yeah, exactly, um, <laughs> it's definitely worth a watch. I'm gonna forgive you for not watching any any films. By the sounds of it, you've been on a TV binge. Yeah, you have been uh, you have you cat and you've been traveling down to London. So. I'll... <laughs> 
I'll let it, I'll let it slide. <laughs> Thanks, man. Thanks. I'll try to get it next time. I see Judd Apatow's got a new film, The King of Staten Island, yeah. right? Yeah, I was about to watch that. Um, apparently got pulled, by the way, from cinemas. So, because it was meant to release in cinemas. Uh, right. And then, and that Universal pulled it because of some miscommunication between a few parties, because it was always meant to be for VOD, video on demand, right? But. So a bunch of people in America bought a bunch of tickets for this film. And I think like a couple hours before, they were like, oh yeah, we're not going to show this film anymore. Here's your here's money back. That's a good PR move, I suppose, because then it raised like Deadline and Hollywood Reporter all, all had articles on it. So I was like, yeah, that's one way to raise a profile on a VOD movie. I think um, in, t- in talking about coming back to the cinema, not to keep bringing up Christopher Nolan, but let's be honest. Um, <laughs> this is it sounds like... Who had, uh, had 10 minutes? Who had 10 minutes? This, the, the, <laughs> it was all a dream for this podcast is it's actually a Christopher Nolan podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, but his film Tenor is going to supposedly still come out on July the 17th and lead spearhead the, the run back to getting everyone in the cinema. Wait, right? so I've seen it. I read that it's delayed. Oh, sorry, sorry, end of July. So it's, it's released on 31st of July. Mulan is still planning to go ahead with a to be released a few weeks before, which is impressive. I expect that expect that to maybe move. Disney isn't backing down, but that's because they also... Mulan has proven to be one of the most expensive films to make, so they are very much pushing to release it. Is it, it all live action, that? Yeah, yeah. We should actually say as well that that in the two weeks that Tenet's been pushed back by, which I'm not sure why it's been pushed back by two weeks. If that's a COVID-related thing, it can't be because they're releasing Inception for two weeks before it comes out back in back in what? cinemas. Well, I think, I think um, there's there's no guarantee, there's no hard guarantee of when cinemas will open. There's a, there's a probable date, but it's not like... Well, AMC, yeah. AMC theatres are returning on 15th. I think AMC is also partnered with Cineworld down here. Right. Oh, interesting. Well, there's 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 basically, I think, that in my mind, the reason why Tenet has is, is been pushed back is for them to release the only film which is possibly anything like it, which would be Inception, I'm down to kind of drum up people's interest in that type of film i guess um also if and then yeah release it i, I don't think it's been pushed back for covid reasons because otherwise they wouldn't release another film in front of it well there's a funny thing now so um uk has given theaters like 450 titles to release back into films back into theaters to get people to go back obviously mm. inception is being re-released for its 10th anniversary um and apparently it's going to be filled with like snippets from tenor and just like more drum up like you said, drum up the release of Tenet a couple of weeks later, I suppose. But also I'm thinking this way, if people do end up going, because t- uh, Inception, I think it's it's like 850 mil right now, box office receipts. Um, so I think if people do get end up going, I think it could strike over a billion, which would be <laughs> a second hit for Nolan in terms of... Uh, it's actually a really good idea. Have they done that hit. before with like with big se- well, like sequels where... Yeah, I mean, they'll, re- they'll re-release Avatar before Avatar 2 comes out. Because everyone's for sure. forgotten about that fucking film. Yeah, and you would think like, <laughs> oh yeah, well, I'll just go and refresh myself. And- Everybody watched it was dead. Yeah. <laughs> so, there is a theory... That 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 tenet is a sequel to Inception, which the only reason I think this could be true is because they're releasing Inception before it. But I think the real reason they are is that it's just to to drum it, to up. Drum it up. Yeah. But there there are there are theories. People have broken down the trailer. They've seen like the same briefcase in the tenet trailer that they have it's a, in it's the one that used Inception. 
everyone's got suits and slick back hair. Oh. It feels like it's the same world. No one's talking about how the color grade is totally different. Hang on. Um, yeah, second. but I think the biggest the biggest kind of connection there, it it, it has Michael Caine. My, exactly. But my, okay, look, my my I'm not going to go on about this because this will go on for my only My only reason why I think it could be a sequel is because it feels so unbelievably surprising if it was. Yeah. <laughs> That it's the kind of thing that Nolan might do. <laughs> I don't know. This isn't the Nolan podcast. There's one. There's one other thing I've been watching, which I'll just drop in. Season four of um, Thirteen Seasons, Thirteen Reasons Why. Um, <laughs> Thirteen um, Seasons. I like, <laughs> just like to reiterate my thanks for introducing yeah. me to what is the greatest TV show in the history of TV oh. shows. Thanks, oh, Tom. Week, I created this monster. Now, I created now this take monster. it down. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> take down all 13 seasons of 13 seasons away i've actually never watched that i think i saw like the first never 10 minutes it. or something i've never properly um never properly watched it i could give you 13 reasons why to not watch it <laughs> sorry, sorry. The, the, the funny thing is the first season was was good and the second and good. third yeah. season have supposedly been quite bad but yeah. Sparrow, it's quite funny because Sparrow's like i know this is bad it's like it's like getting yeah, yeah. it's like getting a pizza when you're on a diet. It's like I know this is bad, but it's still a pizza. I'm going to enjoy it. I want this the badness. Like, yeah, <laughs> this is like what Sparrow's I'm, I'm, just, I'm just watching it now to um to see it through. But in all seriousness, the first season is good, and then it tails off. I love the idea that you're just you don't even enjoy it. You're just diligently <laughs> getting through finish. it because you want to finish it. <laughs> must finish it. I need to see the fate of the characters I've grown to love. I'm addicted, man. That's what that's I'm addicted. what a paid paid sponsorship and plug sounds like. I don't like this, but... Sparrow, are you, are you secretly being paid by Netflix to promote this? Because if you are, where's that, that pod money? Is not coming anywhere near us? I'm people talking about this on the podcast. But, um... <laughs> shout out to Movie if they ever want to sponsor us. Okay. still want to shout go. out. Um, so we're a film podcast, but obviously we can't ignore what's going on in the world at the moment because a lot is going on in the world. So, I mean, I think it goes without saying that we're all, uh, well, we're all devastated to hear about the death of George Floyd. Um, and obviously we're all in support of Black Lives Matter. I've seen a lot of film and TV recommendations going around. TV shows and films that I think shine a light on different black directors and kind of, you know, different stories that people need to know about. So I've seen a lot of films that I've recommended, a lot of Ava mm. DuVarney's, um, then uh, James Baldwin documentary, um, like uh, also stuff like from um, Barry Jenkins. So stuff like If Beale Street Could Talk, that one actually is very relevant. Um, then a James Baldwin documentary is called I Am Not Your Negro. Um, it was based on a book that he didn't finish. Um, but yeah, that was a... Uh, it was, I think it might have been the first documentary I watched in the cinema. That's Ralph Beck, isn't it? I think, directed Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, that one was very turbulent. And I think because we are a film podcast, I'll draw things from that one. That one spoke about how um, kind of divisive and damaging film has been for black communities in the past, I want to say 100 years. Yeah, I'd say about 100 years. Um, s- starting from Birth of a Nation, uh, which was the first film to gross over a million bucks, as you would say. So you can imagine how popular that film was. And and to go on to that, imagine if you haven't seen Birth of a Nation, it's very, it portrays black people in a very extremely negative and racist light. Most of those stereotypes kind of kind of stem from that film on and they either been repeated or reiterated or just kind of some sort of form has been taken from that one film. Um, and 
yeah, so, and it kind of goes on forwards, like, into the 50s, how, uh, how also, like, obviously, the controversial Gone with the Wind has been pulled, as we've heard, um, for its racial insensitivities. So, yeah, that one is very, it's, uh, it's a good documentary for sure, definitely recommend, um, and, yeah, if you're a film fan, I think it is important to take note of how damaging cinema has been for mm. for those communities. And so the, the least, I suppose, that we could do as film fans is to watch the other side of that spectrum, which is films by black people, black directors, black writers. That documentary is probably a good starting point to go on, on from. Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? It's like you kind of think, on the one hand, film is just meant to entertain. It's just meant to be a bit of fun. And for that extent, like why drag it into the world of, of kind of controversial politics and race relations and stuff. But the recent debate has sort of like made you realize that, that film and TV shows and stuff has such an impact on the way people think about race. For sure. Um, and so it can, it can do a lot of harm if it kind of reinforces stereotypes and, and you know, it doesn't really help to kind of improve relations, but it can also do a lot of good if, it's, um, uh, if it shines a light on things that people aren't always comfortable looking at mm. or talking about um i guess film always does that in one way or another it kind of makes you it holds up a mirror and makes you kind of like reconsider areas of your life or the world that we live in um that you wouldn't usually just see in your everyday life so it's a really powerful tool i think film has a unique ability to to put you into someone else's shoes mm. as best as as best as it can and give you a different perspective one thing i was thinking about with the, the gone with the wind sort of debate is that um uh there's there's a sort of like there's another aspect of that one which is about history so um it's i i I can't remember where i read this but someone was writing about how with gone with the wind it's not just a case of like you know reinforcing negative stereotypes or anything like that it's it's also the fact that um a lot of people won't necessarily know their history in great detail about like the reasons behind the american civil war and what life was like for black Americans and white Americans, I guess, before the Civil War. And so their only reference point um, would be films that they've watched, like Gone with the Wind. And I think that's probably true when you think about, like, that's certainly true of me, and I did a history degree. Like, there are areas of, of history that I'm not very familiar with, where the, the thing I know most about is the film that I've watched that was from that era. Um, yeah. And so it's, it is actually interesting when you think, like, actually, films do need to kind of take um, a little bit of responsibility to make sure that they're kind of, I don't know, portraying a reality that is balanced. Um, either that, or audiences just need to be like, you know, very clear, made aware of the fact that that films show maybe one side of it, or you know, have a their art. So they they don't, they can't possibly sort of you know give a fair balanced view of whatever period they're depicting. For sure, Absolutely, for sure, and I would I would say to your point, um, kind of learning history from films. Um, a lot of history is taught through film. So I remember in my history lessons um, in English school, I remember watching Mississippi Burning, which is a film by Alan Parker, a white guy. Um, and although it's it's a good film, it still you know portrays two FBI. I think yeah, I think if I remember correctly, it was FBI guys investigating KKK in Mississippi. Um, mm. And kind of like how the black community deals with that and stuff. I feel like they they should pick if they're going to show films in history lessons. They should pick a a bigger array of you know of films on that spectrum, ranging from you know kind of like almost you want to get as close to the source as you can, right? 
if you're looking for something credible. Uh, so although film is art, you still want that art to be at, not as subjective as you can, right? You want to you want to see what kind of the day in the life is. So mm-hmm. yeah, stuff like Mississippi Burning shown in history curriculum, I don't think that's all that great. So you got yeah. you got to be choice about what you're watching, I think. Mm. I think it it goes without saying as well that, you know, in the film industry, representation needs to increase massively yeah. with the amount of of black directors, writers, producers, people behind the scenes as well. And there's so many roles within the film industry that that never get that are quite powerful roles like casting directors, you know, roles that where people are shaping what films are like and what films get made. Studio heads. Um, and it's like yeah, exactly. You know, because yeah. uh, it's kind of like a head of the snake. You know, everything goes through there. So, although, yeah, sure, you're a casting director, you still want, you're still going to have to kind of get approval. What's kind of like popular, or so mm. from from top down, right? So further to really just further to the points that everyone's made, I think um, one of the most important parts of the Black Lives Matter movement has been the general increase in awareness of issues which people like myself may not have considered before. So I'm actually I'm actually going to suggest a podcast, which I, I wouldn't usually do. Um, so the podcast I'm going to recommend is called Rugby Union Weekly. And it's basically, it's normally just a discussion around the latest news within rugby. But they've done an episode recently which focuses especially on the Black Lives Matter movement. I just found it a really good discussion around the subject. Um, it raises a bunch of issues that you wouldn't have necessarily considered um, and so for me personally, I just found it to be very informative. I'd recommend it to anyone who wants to learn a little bit more around the issues. So this particular episode, so the, the podcast is called Rugby Union Weekly. This episode is called Race and Rugby. It does touch a little bit on rugby itself, obviously, but it's a podcast where I think anyone can can take something out of it, rugby knowledge aside. Um, so yeah, that's that's what I'd suggest if anyone Anyone fancies to listen. And um, a couple of the shows we can suggest, The 13th by Ava DuVernay, um, which I think is about the racial inequality of um, prison, the prison system in the States. Um, obviously, Spike Lee, who very timely, I think almost by coincidence, um, he's got a new film, The Five Bloods, which is on Netflix, um, which people are saying is very good. And there, there actually is... Um, footage of the Black Lives Matter movement in there, which he he put he said he put in you know six months ago. It's just by complete chance that this is appearing in the film when when he's released it. Obviously, do the right thing, which is an amazing movie um, for anyone who hasn't seen that. It's 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 timely. And I was listening to a, an interview with Spike Lee where he actually said, uh, you know, he was like, as a film director, you don't want your films to be go out of date, right? Um, you want your films to be relevant. But he was like, in this case, it's actually sad that this film I wrote in 19, 1988 is still relevant 30 years later, mm. um, which was quite interesting to hear because, you know, so much goes into the making these things and you want them, you want longevity to them. But at the same time, in you that case, date I think... badly. Yeah. 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 Um, obviously, Black Klansman, which is an amazing film. Uh, Detroit by Catherine Bigelow, um, which is about the 1967 Detroit uh, riots. That's good. LA 92, which is meant to be an amazing documentary. It's around the Rodney King, Rodney King trial and the, and the, and the riots. Um, the Black Power mixtape, 1967 to 1975, which I think is, examines the Black Power movement through Swedish journalism. That was on movie. Anyone who's got movie to check that out, that's been recommended heavy. Uh, the Black Panthers, Vanguard of the Revolution by Stanley Nelson, 
which examines the Black Panther Party in the 60s, is a big recommend as well. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's plenty more stuff, but I think some of these are are some of the big ones that are being recommended, and you know, in their in their own right, are just great shows to watch. Oh, actually, there was another one that was recommended, which I haven't seen, called NYPD: Biggest Gang in New York. Yeah, yeah, that was a good one. It's a, but that one's about Eric Garner's uh, Eric Garner's death and how the guy who captured on on a video and how he went on to join these cats in New York who are essentially full-time police watchers. So what they do is they go around New York and they try to find police brutality and film it because you can't film most yeah. police. So that, that one's about that. And it's a, also, it's on YouTube, by the, the way. The title, the title being the kind of yeah. flip that yeah, yeah. NYPD are the biggest gang. That, yeah. that whole thing is on YouTube, so you can watch it there. Um, and it's also, yeah, it's a difficult watch mainly because you're like, because Eric Garner's death, I think, didn't, I think it was like seven years ago. So it's still as close to home as you're going to get. It's not like, you know, 60s burning, burning Mississippi or whatever. So it's still mm. hard to watch because, yeah, everything's kind of filmed on, film fo- on phones and stuff. So, but I, th- I think that one's uh, definitely crucial to understand the whole thing about this banding police, which is the latest articles that's coming out of those across the Atlantic, basically, uh, what, how they say to defund police. And and so that documentary is a good way to understand how, just how corrupt and brutal the police system is. A lot of these are quite US-based yeah. um, watches, but, you know, this issue is a global issue. Yeah. You know, it stems far beyond just the US. For sure. But yeah, I think we can, you know, we can shine a light on directors people don't know, such as J.D. Dillard. I didn't know. Our, I didn't know him. Our director this week. Yeah, I I didn't know. Him. I don't think any of us did except Benas. Right? Yeah, Benas yeah. knows everything. Yeah. Benas. <laughs> Benas has been on the uh, on the indie indie circuit on and this tree uh, of knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, like Neo um, sees the world in the kind of code and stuff. <laughs> Benas just sees it in those like credit rolls. That <laughs> just cherry <laughs> Literally everything. Um, so yeah, JD Dillard's had a very interesting career, and I think he's about to go on to have an even more interesting career. Um, and his first film is Slight, uh, as in Sleight of Hand, written like that, which came out in 2016. The synopsis for this film is a young street magician, Bo, is left to care for his little sister after their parents' passing. When he gets in too deep, his sister is kidnapped, and he's forced to use his magic and brilliant mind to save her. So, um, yeah, this is a film that is probably unknown to a lot of people. And I'm surprised, personally, I'd never heard of it because it's kind of touted as being a superhero uh, superhero indie film, um, which had a budget of $250,000, which, you know, isn't a huge amount for this type of film. Raise my hand, bro. Um, <laughs> aside from me writing J.J. Abrahams, <laughs> like Abraham... Abraham Lincoln, is this your other issue with the uh, with the one pager? Yeah, yeah, it is. Because r- this morning I read another interview with him. Where, yeah, we had a a, a, a small six figure digit. Uh, so I got a feeling it it was more than two fifty. Last time I checked, two fifty is six figures. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, but let's get into it because I think the the low budgetness of this film is something that um, comes across. Comes across. Yeah, he's an interesting guy because he. So what I read was that he worked at a, produ- a TV production company, I think, for a while, 
And then he's been a big Star Wars fan his whole life. And I think he wanted to be a writer before being a director. And then he heard about this receptionist opening at Bad Robot, which is a J.J. Abrahams, <laughs> spelt without an H and a double M, um, production company. You know, these guys produce Star Wars and all sorts of stuff. Mm. Um, so he actually took a pay cut and a reverse career move to be a receptionist there and i really liked how he put this as he, he put it as psychological income so being a receptionist at somewhere like this is somewhere where you can get to learn and see people actually working in the industry that you want to be in but i think that move says quite a lot about him as a person i think it, it uh, for me it's just it shows someone who's really dedicated to wanting to make films yeah another point on this is kind of to do writing you don't want to be doing uh, which is what he meant by being a receptionist so you do kind of like a a thing that pays your your rent and stuff so you don't have to worry about it but it also you don't want to be an assistant to something because that's what a lot of people are trying to get into to in this industry to be an assistant for someone but then that can be a psychological assault because then you're at home at like 10 in the evening trying to write or whatever and you're having email issues with like you know your exact your boss trying to get him a, a fucking cab or something so yeah i was told to be like just you know get a job that kind of pays the rent or whatever and just focus on on your craft you know you're, you're done with your day at five or six and that's it you go home you do your writing and then you start again that's definitely advice i would i would give to other people that want to do writing of any kind screenwriting writing in general i think it's just to get a job and then just like leave it at the door kind of uh at five or six once you leave there's a lot to be said for just proximity to the sort of work that you actually want to get into like i think a lot of people in fear to do that a lot of my friends who are actors also as a side job rather than just being a receptionist for a completely different industry like front of house at big theatres or something and it's a bit like it's hard to see the actual benefit because you're like well you're not actually acting or anything when you're sort of selling ice cream to rich people <laughs> yeah. but I guess there's a there's a sense that like you're still within the world and you're still kind of in a small way helping to create theatre even when you're just doing your day job um, and I guess it also can theoretically lead to opportunities right because um, you sort of can build the network of people who are in that world and then that unlocks doors further down the line yeah so i sort of i sort of see see that um that benefit and see why he did it so interesting he's such a huge star wars fan i think he even um i will get on to how he, this happened but he uh jj abrahams invited him to come and work on the force awakens oh, right cool. to go abroad to various different countries and work on that film um, and i think he was even a stormtrooper in one of the yeah. scenes it's interesting that someone who's such a fan of Star Wars would get a job opening at somewhere like Bad Robot where they're literally producing them. I think that's just such a, I don't know, such a just a great intersection of what you like and something happening that presumably changed this guy's life because he's now, you know, making films. And yeah, we'll come on to later some of that stuff. Yeah, what did everyone think of Slight? Because we should say before we go into Slight that uh, Dillard himself was a, was a magician growing up, right? He was quite big on learning tricks when he was younger and kind of used to spend summers, you know, being a magician at various events. And I think there's a really interesting intersection between filmmaking and, and magic tricks, mm. which happens to be the kind of storyline of this film as the main character is a, is a street magician. Don't, I mean, don't all shout at once. I really liked it. I thought there was, um, yeah, I thought it was good. It, I'd call it um, a, a tin job in, in a sense, like like Baby Driver. And what I mean by that is I kind of, ex it was what I was expecting it to be pretty much. Um, 
Mm. Which is a bad thing. No, or, it's, or it's a good it... thing. Because it's, it, it's like, um, no, I, I kind of, I was looking forward to it and it delivered. You know, it doesn't always happen. Yeah, there were a couple of total things which, the only thing I would say, which is, threw me off slightly, was uh, sometimes I just wasn't sure. I guess the so spoilers. I guess the example I would use is when the when the meat cleaver when the meat cleaver comes out and, and he chops the guy's hand off. That just took me. I was like, that seemed to kind of come out of nowhere to be like suddenly really gory oh, like that. Um, well, that's, that's what I felt. I um, think yeah, I'd agree with that. I, I think I think that on on the plus side, I think it's ama- it's amazing how much they managed to do in a short period of time in a small budget. But I agree that from a writing perspective, there's a lot of stuff that seems to just kind of happen for the convenience of the story, which feels quite heavy handed and, and, and jars with what you know about the characters from before. So the meat cleaver is one. It's a bit like, okay, that's suddenly come out of nowhere. <laughs> He's asked him to chop his hand off. It's like, would he do that without giving him any kind of warning or any sort of like prep beforehand? Second thing was like, like cutting the drugs with, with baking soda. It's like, that's kind of the last thing you'd expect this character to do. Cause he's this like straight and narrow. Um, I'm not going to, I'm not going to get in trouble with anything. I'm just going to kind of like keep my head down. Interesting. And, and, and also like the relationship him with um, his girlfriend, I can't remember her name now. That all just seems to just very conveniently become a very serious relationship without using any kind of intimacy between them. Like they have an awkward first date and then suddenly she's moved in. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like you know i think there are there are there are things where it's like the the story develops because it's convenient to do that rather than you really understanding how they got to that that point i think it's worth saying before going into that this film feels like it's quite a fresh approach to the indie superhero yeah. thing like I, I feel like i'd never the kind of intersection of being a magician and having this sort of other ability feels quite like a fresh idea I agree that there were some bits of the film that felt a little bit like either that was convenient or yeah, would would he do that as mm, a character? Mm. Um, but I kind, of, I kind of forgave it because I I think it it also because I just read so much into the indie filmmaking side of it that so much was achieved on this film in such a small time. It only had a sixteen day shoot, um, and if we're taking the budget as face value, it's at two hundred fifty thousand. It's not yeah not a lot achieved a lot with what it did and maybe even overstretched which is where maybe things started getting stretched in directions that that weren't working yeah i guess i wondered whether or not this film would have benefited from having a larger budget like i felt like there were some bits where i was like i kind of i kind of wish they had another two hundred fifty thousand dollars. like that would have that would have elevated elevated it slightly even more probably and maybe an extra 20 minutes as well a bit longer to kind of develop the relationship i was quite like... happy with the length actually yeah <laughs> sure anyway, yeah. <laughs> yeah just little things where it kind of felt like it moved on too quickly but i totally agree that like with a budget and shoot length of of like that small you'd expect the ambition to be a lot lower like oh we'll, we'll make something about um the relationship between a family like in their house or whatever because it's just so much easier to contain it, you have to admire that ambition and they did do actually the superhero stuff actually i thought quite well it wasn't like overblown and so full of vfx it was actually quite a kind of nice build into the into the main story yeah i feel like a lot of a lot of thinking went into the kind of reversing of what you would expect a superhero film because i mean like is it a superhero mm. film because i think this kind of film was marketed Iron Man meets Chronicle mm. or whatever. Mm. And I, 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 I understand why why the guys in the marketing department were probably <laughs> like, let's let's make it let's make it like this. But I, I don't think it is that. I think it's something a bit more I think it's something slightly a bit more original than that. Yeah. Um in the 
it's not a, an in, it's not an indie superhero film. It's not a superhero origin story. It's it's much more about this character, Bo, the main character, and how he's just trying to get by, and how he has this magic. Uh, he has the thing that makes him happy, which is doing magic tricks. But you know that was never intended to be used in a way that's building him up to be this bigger character than he is. Because ultimately, at the end of the film, he's still almost the same person. Yeah. Do you know what well, I mean? Well, I guess he's- the um. It's interesting how when you read the synopsis, it's all about like how he uses his brilliant mind to escape this um, this situation that he's in. And I guess there's a hint in there about what the superhero in, in inverted commas um, aspect of the film is really there to do. It's not really it's not really meant to be like um, you know if you think about superhero films where it's like someone falls into a bucket of acid or something and then comes out and they have this like immense power that's basically invincible it's not that it's more just a kind of a way of showing that this guy's ingenuity means that he he's like smart enough and hard working enough like to get himself out of trouble the magnetic thing that he has is all just something that he built um and something that he's created himself which means yeah it's not so much about the superpower it's about him creating that superpower for yeah. himself Benas, you've been on you've been unusually silent. I, you, I, feel, I feel like you're about to lay down the whole indie wire back catalogue of stuff on slide. No, 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 no. Um, I like I like your theories and, and like what you guys enjoyed about it. I didn't have a problem with like the meat cleaver aspect of it or whatever, mainly because it happens around twenty or so minutes in. That's kind of like if it's not formulaic, it's it's done by the book. Whereas like um, if you've read John York's book, it's basically kind of no point of no return kind of kicks things off so it had to happen and i didn't mind it it didn't feel out of left field for me because got his character to be like this guy will do anything he needs to do to survive hence because he threw away the scholarship to build to use that magnetic thing as magic to make sure he provides for his little sister so this guy is whatever kind of you whatever wall you kind of put put him up against he'll he'll manage to get his way out of it and that's kind of building it into Lewis's thing of him being like this smart guy who who knows who kind of picks his fights. They made a big deal to make sure he he came across as being a very diligent young man. Yeah. And I was a bit confused by his age at the start. I was like, is this guy thirty? Because he's looking after like his daughter, or is he fifteen? Yeah, how did you not get that? Like this, the the beginning track tracking shots of like the scholarship and then the voiceover of his well, of his mum dying they kind of yeah no no i get i get the parents passing but it's just like he he lives in this fairly okay house and you know just he just seems more mature than his years which i'm not saying is a bad thing at all i think it i think it made made for a very interesting yeah character that just one point when i was watching it where i was like wait is this guy like 30 years older is he? <laughs> is he like- that's the whole point really though isn't it it's like yeah. he's this um he's, he's this young up. man who's had to age really quickly he's yeah. had to kind of grow up and and the magic is kind of part of that it's like magic is um because it's funny actually magic is it's it's shown in this to be more like a product of hard work like he's practiced and practiced and practiced and it's his passion yeah and the fact that he's so good at it you're kind of meant to think you know the fact that somebody who's had such a hardship like his parents passing away and like obviously you know like struggling to to provide for his sister and stuff it's quite impressive that he's managed to to create this kind of skill and the superpower which which isn't really a superpower the magnet thing that he's built is just a is just a part of that yeah um so it's, a, it's just a character device isn't it it's just showing you that he is willing to put the put the work in 
Absolutely. And so mm. after the guy cuts off the hand, it kind of sets things in motion. So obviously that's the reason why he got the kilo of coke to, to kind of sell. But the end game, like it always has been from the beginning, is for him to get out. Uh, for him to move out with his sister um so the whole thing of him cutting up to coke i, I was like dealers do this already this is nothing like i i you speak you speak from experience <laughs> <here. laughs> so it was to snort pure baking powder <laughs> it's the only way for me to watch all the indie movies you know <laughs> um it didn't, yeah it didn't feel out of left field or anything because yeah it's like yeah this is to maximize capital. So of course he's going to do whatever he can to move out as fast as he can. Cause he, cause he's by that point, he's already seen what Angelo can do. He obviously asked him to cut off the hand. So he knows shit will only get worse. So you think the cutting of the drugs was about him planning a way out of. of... Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, right. I see. I, I guess, I guess it's a classic thing of like why, why the film probably needed an extra 20 minutes if they wanted to build this story. Cause I, I was really surprised when, when he started getting beaten up by Angelo because he cut the drugs. Yeah. I was a bit like, Oh wait, hang on. I thought I like you, I thought Angelo had asked him to do that because he was doing it and they hadn't really kind of like landed the yeah. reason he was doing it or why i yeah i, I met i got a tiny bit lost there with with the motives behind yeah no because and because obviously angelo wants his product to, okay i'm getting way too deep here but he wants he wants his product to be pure so that people buy from him also but second, that's not everybody knows as much about drug dealing as you clearly <laughs> <laughs> also, secondly, so the proper purity is 93.4 percent, but this was going down to 92.1 percent. <laughs> what also angelo this is the point that angelo knows that Bo is trying to split because he's trying to cut cut drugs, take that share of those drugs and not give the cut to Angelo. So basically he's going obviously behind his back, right? So now he's thinking, okay, so he's going behind my back, can't trust him. He's probably will split and that Bo Bo's intentions were to split anyways. Mm. Obviously it backfired on him and now he owes forty five large. And obviously, Angelo is is a big character from the West Wing. West Wing, right? Oh, um, yeah, yeah, he is. I mean, not Angelo. Just to clarify, <laughs> the actor. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a little bit of a weird connection. Just to be clear, they're definitely not the same. Uh, the, the same character across these two. Jewel um, Hill, I think, is his Dulé, name. Dule, I think it's like Dule, D-U-L-E with an with with an accent. So I think that's. Was it strange to see him in this kind of role? Um, yeah, he's like the opposite. It. so obviously west wing is ancient now so like that this is 20 years ago in in the west wing he plays this um brilliantly smart young guy who becomes like the assistant to this to the president he's like this really straight and narrow like really honest guy who's you know like trying a similar situation actually to Bo, oh. yeah because he's in the west wing he's raising his sister because his because his mom who was a single mom was a police officer who was killed and so he's now looking after his sister and trying to support her while working for the president and stuff so maybe they they got him in as a kind of this is the polar opposite are we getting into yeah. it was all a dream here because it feels like there's a theory it's like, somewhere I mean, it, it writes itself this week guys it writes itself <laughs> Just going back to Dillard for a sec, I thought it was quite honest of him when he, I read an interview where he talked about how he, he kind of grew up at this time when the internet was just kind of becoming a thing. Whereas obviously now you can go online and find TV scripts and movie scripts and you can, you know, find anything off, off Google. He was talking about how he bought the, the screenplay for Lost on eBay for like $60 or something. And it was like a photocopy of it. He wanted to read the pilot to Lost and was just desperate to get it. And um, yeah, I don't know. I, I get, I just get a bit of a, 
a kind of hardworking sense from him as a director. And, and you know, not to bring up Nolan again, <laughs> but one of the things that, that has always stuck with me was something that Nolan has said about watching films is like, you can tell when someone has really put in effort to a film and has really tried to craft something mm. that they believe is is what they should be doing and, and you know hasn't just kind of randomly made something and I feel like you could feel that with this film mm, um, definitely. especially how it seems as though there's when it comes to the magic side of stuff there's so much of as Dillard was saying himself there's so much of him in Bo in the terms of him being a street mag magician and doing these tricks for audiences and kind of the way that when you do tricks you, it's all about the reaction that's on other people's faces, but also the reaction on Bo's face when you watch how much enjoyment he gets from doing these tricks. You notice that the camera hangs a lot more on Bo when he does tricks because, and the kind of aftermath of them because you want to see him smiling and enjoying that. So you, I don't know, I think there was, it was interesting just to see how he's pulled from his own life experiences to make his first film, which as we're seeing, can be a bit of a trend in, in some of these directorial debuts. I would say that they're, for me, there's just such an interesting intersection between magic and directing because there is a manipulation, emotional manipulation in both of these, you know, not necessarily in a bad way, but there is a, a way of, you know, false perception and believability it's and desired you know, effect. Exactly, yeah, and eliciting emotions mm. and, and yeah, desired effect from people. I can only think that that would have that, that learning magic in real life would help being a director. I think it would help you to understand how to elicit emotions and 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 surprise from people. Yeah. Um, and I, I think the scenes where he was doing magic on the street were well done. In a lot of ways, I actually wanted the film to focus a bit more on that. I found it quite engrossing when he mm. was was doing that stuff. Um, and as a side note, a lot of the effects in this film, I think there's only a few CG shots, if that. I think most of it was done practically, like even the floating of the ring yeah. when he did it in front of Holly was just on a wire. Yeah. You know, they've removed it in post or whatever. He he was saying that if you saw a, a picture of this set, <laughs> it would be like making films in student, uh, college. Films, yeah. yeah, exactly. Someone's holding a green screen. Someone else is holding a wire. Mm, you know. Yeah. One of my favorite bits of the um, on the magic thing was there's a conversation that he has where essentially the message I, I took from it was the best magic tricks aren't actually tricks; they're just real. Um. So when he talks about the guy who stabbed his hand, um, is like, how yeah. did he do it? Well, it wasn't act it wasn't actually a trick. He just stabbed his hand. Um. And um. And it's mm. a similar. Um. There's a similar kind of thing in the Prestige where the, the best tricks are actually just just real. Um. And um. And it in a sense it kind mm. of feeds in. Uh, I don't know. It, it, it kind of feeds into the personal sacrifice in order to kind of get his goal. Um, yeah, during that scene, I, I definitely got prestige vibes where he's explaining that story. I was like, oh, that's prestige right there. So, Dom, you mentioned that how during Magic, um, the camera focused a lot on Poe's face. I also think, think that that's just a budgetary thing. <laughs> they can't keep showing the effect. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, th this is why doing something like this story leans into low budget well, because, sure, yeah. you know, you, you don't, you don't have to show every single bit of it. And they, I think he even said himself, they're ne they're ne they were never going to do a now you see me type sure, scene, you know, the, those yeah. movies. Actually, let's talk about that. His, his power, I suppose, this magnetization. Yeah. For me, it was something that seemed quite, it came at the start when he was removing the batteries that felt quite interesting and like, what the fuck is that kind of yeah. thing? And then 
it kind of didn't get commented on too much until he was in bed with mm. with Holly, his his girlfriend who he's been with for three years for three yeah. minutes, and suddenly uh, she was commenting on it. And yeah, you sort of you start to learn more about as I think Asparagus said, the personal sacrifice that he kind of made. Yeah. Or was making with well, that. I like that it was um, an interesting device. I like that it was. I, yeah, I like that it was exactly that. Just a device, not a not the whole film. Um, it was like I, I like that you you sort of were introduced to it at the beginning, and when you saw it in the mirror, you thought, "Oh, right, so this is going to be that film. It's going to be a a film about how he like discovers these powers and then like whatever goes on a crime fighting spree or something." Um, but it wasn't. It was actually like the the hierarchy of kind of just character development to superhero stuff was very much like it was just him it was the character development first so it was just him struggling his way through and actually like having a normal i suppose net character arc without any kind of superpowers and then the, the superpower just came in as a device at the end to kind of help him achieve what he wanted to achieve mm. so i quite liked that it was a it was sort of subordinate to the main story i thought it would have been a bit of a cop-out if it was just like he's now got this super duper perfect thing that can the the way this film was marketed and ultimately distributed by blumhouse right blumhouse tilt which is a co-production it's one of the like subsidiaries but it's a co-production with neon throwback to get out and uh he took this to sundance i think he commented that himself that this was one of the films at sundance that was potentially a bit more quote quote commercially uh commercially driven in the way that you could potentially sell this film as being a superhero film but i i I gotta say i feel like it's a slight as just building what louis just said it is a slight disservice to the film because it's not really at least now unless there's a sequel at some point it's not really a an origin story of sorts and it never really has like the superhero moment per se i mean the closest it gets to it is when he goes and visits the guy to get an upgrade but that again that just felt like someone who'd run out of options not that there's necessarily a definition to a superhero film but i felt like iron man meets chronicle i'm not i don't know if it was the best way of describing to describe it as a superhero film is misleading i mean i would you know it's not um not there's anything wrong with it but it's just not yeah i would i would describe it to (laughs) friends as a superhero film (laughs) but yeah then again marketing doing something right really yeah yeah yeah. it was the same same producer who gave james bond the invisible car (laughs) 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 how many of them do you want you can have as many as you want um, you're saying that even though it might have done the film a, a disservice in some way, you're saying it's a good thing, Benas, that that it was. Yeah, like I mean, that. Is, so you want your film to be seen, okay? How would you describe it? in a genre term? You can't be like this film is about this and this. How would you cross section this genre? Iron Boy. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a genre. <laughs> <laughs> what? Yeah, there is. You're not, you're not hearing me talking about Tetsuo the Iron Man at the start of this episode. I know what you um, mean. No, I think, well, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Although, yeah, we keep coming back to this whole thing about it's not a superpower. Like, a superpower is all about, like, some sort of... It's practically supernatural. But would you call Batman a superhero and his powers... Money. I'm there, you there you go. <laughs> Batman, as in he, he builds his powers. He builds his powers. Yeah, true. And he ha- he does actually have a similar thing to Iron Man in his chest. Oh, yeah. but in Iron Man, Man 2, it was infected, guys, if you haven't seen yeah. it. So. Look, had this film had a million, another million dollars to play with, it, it would be more chronicle meets iron man for me I, I have no doubt there would have been more scenes where he was pushing cars out the mm. way or he was you know there was a bit more gravitas to the situation which maybe then would make me think yeah this is more superhero-y but like yeah it's an interesting point to say 
you want people to see your film, especially if you're a first time director and you've and you've put what you know put your heart and soul into yeah, this. You want, you want this to pay off, right? So I don't th- I don't think if they didn't say like, oh, this is kind of like RMME's Chronicle. I don't think it would have made four million four million bucks. You know, right? No. Yeah. No, exactly. Yeah, and that's true. It was a profitable film, which go you know goes without saying. Is 2016, 2016, you're smack dab in the middle of this super superhero thing. Where you have Marvel and yeah. DC, so it's it's just the easiest way to go with this. Do you think they'd? Uh, do you think yeah. it's due for a remake? They could do like a like a <laughs> ten mil version, where the old where the physics yeah. teacher is Michael Caine. <laughs> <laughs> I really really liked it when he went to the house and confronted Mr. West Wing, and. <laughs> And there was a couple of really nice shots and moments when he was using his power to kind of take down the two other goons. There was a Matrix moment. And I wanted, yeah, and I wanted that scene to continue. There could have been more of a chase scene or more of an mm. ingenious way of using his, you know, like running behind a door and then locking the door with your hand without having to touch it. You know, I felt like there could have been moments where it was used in a way that was like, yes, the thing, the power he's got is ingenious in how he's made it. But also the way that he uses it is not just brute force. Yeah. There's other ways you can use that power, and I, I would have liked to have seen more of that. Again, I'm 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 just assuming that because the budget was was tight and the timings were tight, this is keeping it into one house and one area was how they went about it. But I don't think that's any bad thing to finish a film wanting to see more of that. And I, if there was a sequel to this, which there very much could be, I would absolutely watch it. I think I think it could be interesting with a bit more money and a bit more. Yeah, it's definitely set up a for a sequel, isn't it? The end scene, he this morning I read that he was kind of aiming for the whiplash ending, where you don't get the full story. Where you, you sure some people take it as a as a kind of cue for a sequel, but he was like, no. So spoil, uh, spoilers for whiplash, I guess. I don't know, uh, but we all know mm. where Miles Teller's character is kind of like getting the beat, and he's drumming along to to J.K. Simmons' characters, um, not dragging or whatever, and he cuts right. So, um, so he was aiming for that same thing where he's just like, well, those extra four minutes for, um, showing you the aftermath isn't really going to do much for, for the characters or for, for you. It, it feels more dramatic yeah. to kind of cut off in this kind of big, not necessarily big moment, but, um, this ambiguous moment where you're like, oh, what, the, what's behind the curtain there. So although it sets up a sequel, I don't think there will be, but. Like he said himself, he's like, there's so many ways this character could go. Because obviously his only real struggle by, by that point is his how much he can think of in terms of magic or whatever. And again, I imagine it's a budgetary thing. And it was obviously, it was so implied, yeah. wasn't it? By, you know, someone was just turning the bulb yeah, yeah, up yeah, yeah, on yeah. A, <laughs> a, an overhead bulb to make it look like something else was happening. That's what it looks like in the Scotland broadband office when I was... <laughs> <laughs> You kind of want the first scene of the sequel to just be him installing a light bulb. <laughs> yeah, that would be hilarious. Do you know what? That would be such a brilliant first yeah, scene yeah. for the sequel to kind of be like, "Hey, <laughs> what did you expect? What came? Did this come before? Um, what came before? Did this come before Birdman, or did Birdman become before this? Birdman is twenty fourteen, right. I think, because that that's exactly the same end shot, isn't it? Remember when Emma Stone's oh, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. looking out the window? You're, you're not sure if he's flying or not. Oh, if he's just falling to <laughs> <Yeah>. his death. <laughs> yeah. He's a big fan of, of J.J. Abrahams, spelled without an H and without a double M. You know, you can see that influence of bigger directors in this Absolutely. film. Yeah, um, sure. yeah you, you can see the kind of anamorphic lens that things are shot on, the slight 
flair and the glint that Star Trek, the sci-fi element of this that shines through. The whole Jedi thing, like once you know he's a Star Wars fan, you just think like, oh, this is basically a Jedi with a fallen off. So once I realized yeah. that, I was like, ah, oh, I can see this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As you're watching it, you're kind of picking apart these Easter eggs of his influences, like arranging from, from like JJ and the fact that he, he doesn't want for this film just to be flash he wants some obviously heart and character to it um yeah so you, you kind of you can see where either his his kind of career has kind of influenced him and he where maybe he'll take it next as well uh, yeah I, mm. f- I find it really interesting to kind of just look out for these kind of influences that younger directors or first-time directors kind of wear on their sleeve as a kind of pride thing sparrow you were talking about how you sort of found it a bit inspiring how he was he was chatting about the kind of indie side of making this film. I think in the writing of it, he did take into account, you know, there may be some budgetary limits. So, for example, just limiting the amount of speaking roles um, was, was one example. And just other, basically, he just had an mm-hmm. awareness, I think, of budget constraints in the, in the writing and creation of the script, um, which is just, yeah, it's just a pragmatic approach, which I just thought obviously makes sense to do. Yeah, because for every kind of, I think for every sentence you kind of give to an extra, it kind of entitles them to uh, actors guild minimum for them to be paid. Uh, right. So that's why you want to limit the amount of like, Louis. Louis bringing up his spreadsheet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, hang on a second. We're gonna have to cut back on the invisible cars. <laughs> but I think on that point though from sparrow i think that you know limitations tend to with the right filmmakers end up creating yeah forces creativity yeah yeah and obviously it informed the story quite a lot um he's done a second film by by actually by blumhouse called sweetheart again that was a strip back a strip back horror this time but still a strip back film there's still a sparrow length film coming in at one hour 20 I felt like there was a, a bit more intentional direction within Sweetheart. Um, I watched it, and uh, from the get-go, you're kind of you know you think you know what's going on. That whole story of him kind of uh, buying that lost pilot script, um, you could see a lot of that influence in this. Yeah, um, that's so, true. especially when up until the point where you think you know what's going on, until she she shoots up that flare. There's a beautiful shot in Sweetheart when, when, and the basic story is it's a woman who gets right. trapped on an island. Um, she washes up on an island, and uh, yeah, it's it's like, what's going on here? Why is she here? And there's a shot where she fires a flare in the air at night because a plane flies over, and the flare is going up and up and up, and you're watching her reaction to it, and she's like, come on, someone see it, someone see it. And as it hits the horizon, it silhouettes this like kind of shape of a man yeah. almost like in in the horizon it's a really oh, a cool shot. evocative and yeah really really arresting image it oh, was really surprising what is it, um, is it creepy or just yeah yeah it's creepy because it's you don't expect to see like a huge man shape sort right. of suddenly on the horizon and, it, and it's it's fairly frightening image yeah. filmmaking is all about evocative images and it's all about using these things to describe emotions that sometimes words can't necessarily do in certain situations so yeah, I think more of that is great. And Sweetheart was a, you know, was I I've I was really interested yeah, by it. Same. And he's a massive Star Wars fan and is supposedly 
I don't know, developing a new Star Wars yeah. film, which is which is huge. But just they don't. Um, nothing's been revealed in terms of is it theatrical or is it Disney Plus? After pushing so many Star Wars like Solo and Rise of Skywalker coming in over a billion and plus, um, obviously not doing the two billion that Force Awakens did. Um, so they're kind of rethinking their strategy and kind of like Mandalorian. Apparently, John Favreau's show going it in for them twenty seven million subscribers just off that alone. So. So wow. they're kind of making um, some Star Wars will be Disney Plus exclusives like that. So mm. yeah, it could be, um, especially given his kind of style for kind of boots on the ground kind of story. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I just love that he did Slight in 2016 and it's now 2020 and he's thinking about possibly doing a Star Wars film. I think yeah. that's brilliant. It's such a short yeah. time going from being a receptionist at Bad Robot to helming. <laughs> the- what an amazing audition. He did tell quite a funny anecdote about how he worked on The Force Awakens and halfway through shooting, he went and got a Boba Fett tattoo and they called him back to set and he came back with this like saran wrap over his arm and he was like, I just look like the biggest geek ever. I'm working on Star Wars and I just got a Star Wars tattoo. (laughs) Did anyone have an It Was All a Dream for this film? I had I've got two. You got two? So All a Dream, this is a theory. So... This is a prequel to Angelo's career, Angelo's character's career in Congress. Uh, so over here, he's a drug runner. The climax of this, of Slight, he has that bullet grinding his head. So for him, that was just like a moment to rethink his life choices. And so he decides to clean his act out of drugs and into Congress, making his appearance into West Wing. Or um, Bo's character is just poisoned by copper wiring, lead batteries, and this was all just a hallucination due to the <laughs> radiation poisoning. That's hilarious. So it was all radiation. <laughs> I got. I got to say, his arm towards the end of the film was not looking like it was in a good state. And nobody said anything about that. Yeah, and then suddenly, like when it when it cut later, his arm was totally fine. Yeah, that's a good I, like, point, I, I think it's a pretty dark. It's a dark theory that he dies of copper poisoning, <laughs> but the film being elusive. So, what at what point do you think the film became detached from what was really happening? Like, was it when he changed the batteries that he started hallucinating? Yeah, yeah, because he, yeah, because so everyone keeps asking if it's infected, and he he says he he takes care of it, but he all he does is just like take out the blood or whatever, ch- uh, cotton with cotton swabs. The batteries. Put some vodka so on I'm it. like, dude, yeah, like you just change the batteries. So all you're doing is taking care of the the thing itself. So the, the little <laughs> the little thing, but you're killing yourself. You should have got should have got Duracell because they last longer, according to the adverts. <laughs> Speaking about Duracell, this goes into my theory, right? So my my theory is the film is actually a sponsored advertisement for Duracell. <laughs> Right, and hear me out. So the film, it, it, so the way I take it is the film's about power, right? It's Angelo's power over Bo. It's Bo's power to keep him and his younger sister safe. It's his power to to keep the power over his audience when he's doing magic, right? The film's about power. Duracell, Duracell is about power, right? We're starting to see similarities here. I'm just mimicking Leary from the other episode. Um, <laughs> they, they were halfway through the theory already. When he needs more power, right, he goes to Frank Clem, who's the name of the actor, otherwise known as Granger in the film. That's his name. Granger is a popular place in the States where you buy batteries. There's the name of a famous brand in the States where you buy power and batteries. So my kind of theory is that basically 
the film is an advertisement for 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 Duracell because he goes to Granger, gets these power, gets these batteries, but then at the end of the film, with this last scene, it's Duracell teasing that they've got some new battery coming out, and <laughs> and, and um, and or all that Bo has discovered lithium batteries that he doesn't actually need Duracell anymore. But I, I've, I've just basically my theory is that Duracell provided a large part of the scene. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking hell. So, you know, look, I've, there's connections there, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure, there's connections there. <laughs> <laughs> the sequel is Duracell Plus. <laughs> um, well, my theory, unsurprisingly, all re- revolves around the West Wing. Um, oh, no. <laughs> so, if in the West Wing, this guy, uh, Delay Hill, is Charlie, and he's this young guy working in the president's office, he obviously has a bright future ahead of him. So my theory is that his future ended up meaning joining the Secret Service. So he became this uh, undercover cop for the Secret Service, basically monitoring any kind of threats to national security. They got wind uh, of this guy called Bo uh, in some in somewhere in LA who is developing this technology that could be a serious threat to the US military. Uh, <laughs> sort of like Iron Man had been a few years ago. Uh, so they they sent uh, Charlie from the Secret Service to go and undercover as as a, a drug dealer called Angelo, and basically Angelo is uh, is trying to recruit Bo um, not to join his drug empire, but basically trying to find out more about this technology uh, and perhaps silence him by um, by assassinating him throughout the thing. So I really think this is just the story of the U.S. government trying to control the technology that Bo has created through Charlie, the West Wing guy. Wait, are you saying that Aaron Sorkin had a pass on this script? <laughs> I think Aaron Sorkin ghostwrote it. Also, <laughs> are you saying that Iron Man exists in this universe? Because you said, like, Iron Man a few years before. Oh, yeah, man. Well, he, he's already privatized national security, so uh, <laughs> so it's open season for anyone else. It's a, he's a copycat. Bo is a copycat of, uh, of Iron Man. Are you saying that Bo, Bo's about to come into a lot of money, in other words? <laughs> yeah selling his services <laughs> there was no way you were going to do a theory that didn't involve julie <laughs> yeah Hill i know absolutely not kind of following on from what benis mentioned earlier about saying you know it's, it's supposedly it's a 250 grand budget supposedly um so the real um the real the real trick the um the actual wider the real magic of this film is is in the production <laughs> not the um not the actual film itself because obviously justin dillard does like magic basically it was a much higher budget film it was you know several million but he uh, he, ma- he magically made it disappear <laughs> um so that's actually the real the real skill so um, basically basically you're saying it's money laundering yeah so it gets to, in fact it so it now looks a lot more profitable than it was um because the, the budget was actually which, which, which kind of makes sense because it it looks like a higher budget than uh, um than it is are you saying that they gave him a check and he magically made it disappear in front of you? Yeah. What you're saying is literally like a wisecrack that like a producer would say. It's like, hey, what are you, a magician? You're making the budget disappear here. <laughs> and he turns up, like, yes, I actually am. And then he pulls out yeah. a five dollar note. Pulls out a lighter. But yeah, no, it was, uh, no, was clutching, clutching at straws, which were in fact non-existent. Um, well, you never know. There might have been some magic involved in the production of it. I mean... There was a magician helming it. Yeah, do you think there was magic on set? Like, he would start the day off, like, oh, okay, gather around, gather around. <laughs> do you want to see some magic? <laughs> Let's do some yoga. <laughs> <laughs>
Uh, no, there's some good theories. Really good theories. I quite like Ben S's second theory. Yeah, the copper one. The copper one is quite funny. <laughs> um, it's quite dark, but I feel like it—it's it, the true sacrifice that he made. The copper. I love. I'd love if a line came up at the end of the film that was like, "Shortly after Bo died from copper poisoning." And lead batteries. He led battery. Don't try this at home. <laughs> Disclaimer. Apart from Michael Caine as the physics teacher. Absolutely. <laughs> So you need more power, though, do you? <laughs> you want a bigger gauge, otherwise it's going to know where you're at. <laughs> you're only supposed to blow the bloody Duracell off. Sponsored by Duracell. It's really good to do a genre that is usually crowded out by the biggest budgets imaginable. And actually looking at it, yeah, looking at it with what would what would someone do if they didn't have that budget? It's great. Yeah, so keep an eye on, on Dillard, because I think he's going to be potentially helming the next one of the next Star Wars series that's coming out. And if not, I'm sure whatever he does next is going Maybe to be Yoda origin story. I think Marvel will tap him eventually. Marvel will come knocking. Iron Man Very 4. similar to... We see that you've had experience in Iron Man. <laughs> <laughs> Could you please elaborate on this? <laughs> we won't sue you if you come and make Iron Man 4. <laughs> no, yeah, that, that's Copper true. Man. Look, I, I think I think it's it's really hard to find, like Ben As was saying, a, a style where you can tell a very character-led story, but your film overall is still very sellable and very watchable and very, you know, you can get it out there because ultimately people want them to be made and they want them to go out. People need to Absolutely. see them. Cool, guys. Good movie. Next episode is with Nail and I, which has already been <laughs> recorded. Nails and I. <laughs> Um, this is actually the first episode in a while that we've had all four of us yeah, together. It is. Oh, yeah. It is. Yeah. yeah. Let's not do this again, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've got we've got a couple of interesting uh, directors to do coming up, which we will not reveal now. We're going to disappear in a poof of smoke now. So it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from Louis. He's all in his cycling gear. <laughs> goodbye from Penance. <laughs> <laughs> strong finish. Very strong finish. Goodbye from Spire, who's throwing cards at the camera. <laughs> goodbye, all. All right. See you later. Bye. Bye-bye.